So as we start Romans chapter 11, we are in now the third of three chapters addressing how the nation of Israel stands in relation to the gospel. But if you listen carefully this evening, you'll actually discover that what Paul has to say about how Israel stands in relation to the gospel is exactly how you stand in relation to the gospel. Because there is only one gospel. There is only one saviour. It doesn't actually matter whether you're an Israelite or a Gentile, a non-Jew. We all have one problem, a sinful heart. We all have one judgment that is coming. And there is only one saviour the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider what Paul has to teach us this evening. Well, Paul has already shown us very clearly that whilst God chose for himself this nation of Israel, whilst he worked through them in the world in a very unique and particular way, as we see in the Old Testament, it was never the case that every Jew was automatically a true child of God. To be a true child of God, that requires believing faith. That requires a heart for God, like men such as Abraham and Moses and David and many others. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and read of some of them who are presented to us as true men and women of faith. But actually, as you read through your Old Testament, you realise that they were always the minority in Israel. When you read through the historical books of the Old Testament, when you read from Judges through to Nehemiah, what you find you're confronted with is the continual rebellion and disobedience, often resulting in idolatry within the nation of Israel. And in line with that, God brings increasingly severe judgment against them, along with an ongoing call to repent and to return, because he's a God of mercy and he's a God of grace. They may have had Abraham's blood in their veins, but so many of them were very far from God. And added to that is Paul's clear, clear teaching on election in chapter 9 of Romans. Not everyone likes that teaching, even amongst Christians, not everyone likes it. But Paul could not have been more transparent or forthright. And he shows from the Old Testament scriptures how this has always been the case, that the promises given in the Old Testament are not for the nation of Israel in general, but for God's elect ones within the nation of Israel and for elect Gentiles also. God is completely sovereign over all who will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though Paul was thoroughly convinced 
of this doctrine of election, his heart breaks over so many Jews who have rejected the gospel and who've rejected Christ as their saviour. Now the church in Rome probably did consist mostly of Gentile believers. There was a time when one of the Roman emperors cast all of the Jews out of Rome. And although some later were able to return, probably very many of the the believers in the Roman church, as Paul writes, are actually Gentile believers. Perhaps, perhaps they were starting to wonder if they should ever really expect any Jews to be converted. Has God now completely finished with the nation of Israel? Has God now cast away every single one of them? Well, they are the thoughts which Paul now addresses. Uh, And as we've seen, Paul's method of teaching frequently in this letter is for he himself to ask the question that he knows are going through other people's minds and then to answer them. And so chapter 11 begins with another question that he knows are going through people's minds. Has God just done away with every Jew? Is all of Israel now rejected by God? Has he cast all of them away? So he brings us his answer, which we'll consider in three sections as we look at these first ten verses of Romans 11. Well, the first is a very simple point, isn't it? Because he asks the question and then he gives an immediate answer, certainly not. God has not rejected all of Israel. Certainly not. By no means. God forbid, is a a phrase used by some of the older translations. And to explain, he provides two examples. Exhibit A is the Apostle Paul himself. I'm an Israelite, and Christ has saved me. So how can we say that God has finished completely with the people of Israel? Well, we've already considered Paul's impeccable credentials as a Jew earlier in this series, so I won't go through them all again. Suffice to say that in everyone's estimation, Saul of Tarsus, as he was, was a Jew of Jews. For himself, here you'll see he doesn't regurgitate everything that he said elsewhere. He simply restates his qualification by birth that he is a Jew, an Israelite. And yet God has chosen and saved me. I'm living proof that God has not rejected Israel or else he would have rejected me but he hasn't. God has not cast away his people. But look at what, God, look at what he says there at the beginning of verse 2. God has not cast away his people, and then he defines them like this, whom he foreknew. 
whom he foreknew. Now he's already spoken about God's foreknowledge. He's already spoken about those who've been chosen. He's already spoken about those whom God has elected to use and who God has elected to save. All who come to Christ are those who God foreknew, those who are his people, are those whom he has foreknown. And God's foreknowledge, you'll remember, is not that God has some ability to look into the future and know what will happen. To know someone in the Bible is to intimately love them. And so those whom God foreknew are those whom God foreloved. Those whom in eternity past he knew. Didn't just know about them. He loved them. And he purposed to save them from their sins. He's chosen them. He set his electing love and grace upon them. And these are his people. And these he has not cast away. Now many in the nation of Israel are not of this category. But that does not mean that none of them are anymore. There are still those in Israel who are of these whom God foreknew. And here is a great source of hope and comfort for us today. As so few seem to be converted, as within our own homes there are those who continue in their rejection of Christ, within our church, within every church, there are those who seem to continue in their rejection of Christ. Here is a glorious truth to cling to that God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. He will fulfill and complete his loving purposes down through the ages and through all generations. There are those whom God has foreknown. Even those who as yet have not been physically born into this world, they're foreknown, they're loved. In a very real way, he holds them even now in their hand, in his hand. They're his. And so the great hope and comfort for us here is to pray on and to preach on. Because God has not cast away those whom he will save. God has not cast away those for whom Christ died. And then Paul takes his first century readers back in time some 900 years to the time of the prophet Elijah. You see that there in, in verse 3. You'll find this account in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah has been used by God to defeat the prophet of Baal's on Mount Carmel. Many of you know that story. Remember they made the altar and all the prophets of Baal were crying out and cutting themselves and doing all kinds of untold things. 
to try and make their imaginary God send down fire from heaven. And Elijah, having had the altar soaked through with water, simply prays one sentence. And God pours down his fire from heaven and the prophets of Baal are defeated. But despite that, the evil king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, will give him no rest. And Elijah goes through a time of real spiritual agony uh, and real spiritual heartache and almost uh, a period of spiritual dejection. And he finds himself in the situation where he is absolutely convinced that out of all the nation of Israel, he is the one last surviving believer. There's just him left. And if they kill him, we're done. If they get me, we're all gone. But God answers him. No, Elijah. There are actually 7,000 still in Israel. 7,000 who've remained true to me. Now, it is the case that 7,000 is a very small percentage of Israel's population. But 7,000 is rather more than just one, isn't it? There were relatively few, but God has his faithful elect remnant. It was like that then, says Paul. Have you forgotten? It's like that today, says Paul. A remnant which is Verse 5, according to the election of grace. The election of grace. And so that leads us straight into this second point. Believers in Israel have always been an elect remnant saved by grace. If you're a Christian, well, you're not a remnant of Israel. But in exactly the same way, you are elect and saved by grace and by grace alone. And so Paul is saying in this gospel age, there are still those who are of Israel, who are also of God's elect people. But the language that Paul is using here as he talks about Jewish converts emphasizes that their means of salvation is exactly the same as it is for Gentile converts. There's no difference between the two. It's all God's doing. It's all God's choosing. And it is therefore God's election of grace that's at work. Look at verse 6. There is either a salvation by works, a salvation by means of certain things which you have done, whatever they may be, and however you may wish to describe or define them, things which you have done which merit and earn your good standing before God. And if that's the case, then it has to be all of works, And there is no room for grace, or else it ceases to be by works. 
or it is of grace. Now, of course, the problem with works, such a salvation can never be achieved because we can never do enough. And so it, if any of us is going to be saved, it has to be because there is a God who is rich in mercy and grace who himself provides a way for us to be saved. Even while all of us are still mired in all of our sins and in all of our unrighteousness. And Paul is saying, look, it can only be this or that. It can't be a mixture of the two. It's either all of works or it's all of grace. For grace to be grace, there can be no requirement for works on our part of any sort or to any degree. Or else, even the smallest part of our salvation depends upon me and not on God. We need to be sure that grace is never spoken of as something which we receive from God, which is his response to something that I've done. Yes, God showed me grace, but it was because I. For it to be grace, it must stand alone. And it, will be, it must be all of God towards those who are completely undeserving. Or it ceases to be grace, says Paul. And he says, it's never been any different. That's why and how he's been backing up his teaching with so very many references from the Old Testament scriptures. God frequently pleads with Israel to repent of their sins and to return to him. No other requirements are placed upon them. Repent. Return to me. Now it is true, God requires them to walk in obedience before him. But he does not require them to walk in obedience that by their obedience they might merit themselves to be his people. No, they are to walk in obedience before him as those who are his people who've come to him in repentance and in faith, believing on him from the heart. And so to walk in obedience before God is not to attain something with God. It's not to receive something from God. It's because of who we already are with God and in Christ. It's just the same for us in the New Testament. As Jesus teaches that God's moral law still stands, we're considering this at the moment, in the Shorter Catechism Studies on a Wednesday, God's moral law still stands. We who are Christian believers must live in obedience, but not in order to be saved, but because we are now saved. And God writes his law in our hearts, and it's within us now to walk after Christ, and to follow his commandments because we've been given this new nature. 
Our minds have been illumined to all of these things. Our hearts have been changed so that we can embrace them. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, on this point, looks to the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. That simple little parable is so helpful at so many different levels and in so many different ways. And Dr. Ferguson highlights the fact that the Pharisee's prayer goes like this. God, I thank you that I... I thank you that I... And then he reels off all of the things which he has done, which he believes now puts him in right standing before God. All the things which he has done, which he believes means he is the one who Jesus will say is now justified with God. And Dr. Ferguson makes this point. When you begin to pray, God, I thank you that whatever you say next is crucial. Because if it continues, I thank you that I, then you're probably not a Christian. But if it continues, God, I thank you that you, you're on the right lines. You're on the right track. I thank you that you, and the prayer immediately focuses on God. The prayer immediately is focused upon what he has done, not what I have done. The prayer is immediately focusing upon God's mercy and God's grace. The sinful, unregenerate human heart wants to pray that I... that I'm not so sinful that God would ever reject the likes of me. That I've performed all kinds of kindnesses to my fellow man. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. That I'm basically a good person. That my good outweighs my bad. Well, the gospel needs to strike the Jew in the same way that it strikes anyone and everyone else. I can never hope to get myself right with God. I can never say, I thank you that I, and think that that puts me in right standing with the Lord. I'm ruined through and through in my sin, and so are you. And your only hope, like mine, is to cast yourself before this holy God, confess your sins, plead his mercy, and believe and trust in that which Christ has done on the cross, as we thought about this morning. I need that which God in heaven 
has done for me in Christ Jesus. You need that which God has done in Christ. It's your only hope. Unless God will be gracious towards me, I have no hope. And this is precisely the message of salvation found from beginning to end in God's word. This is the cry of David in that very well-known 51st Psalm. See if you can hear any tint at all of God, I thank you, the I, in David's prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. God needs to do it. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin because I sure can't do it. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And as you continue reading, you discover that when David speaks of himself, he can only speak of his sin. He can only speak of his desperate need. He can only speak to declare and to acknowledge that he is completely dependent upon what only God can do. And if God does not do it, there's no hope for him. David pleads God's grace. He throws himself upon God's grace. And so must you, have you, just to throw yourself on God's grace. Why not do that this very moment if you've never done it before? I would stop preaching and come and pray with you right now if that's what you know you need to do. To cast yourself upon Christ and plead his grace. It's no different for any Jew, Paul is saying here, just like King David, just like Paul himself. Within Israel, there will be those who will be saved. But their salvation can only ever be on this basis that, that God foreknew them, that God foreloved them. And by his grace, he's chosen them for salvation. He did so before time began. In the fullness of time, he sent his only son to die for them, to ransom them from, from their sins. They're all atoning substitute. And when by faith you enter into the reality of this salvation, when by faith you enter into the reality of God's grace, you can do no other but be just caught up in praise and worshipping and thanksgiving for what God has done. A miserable sinner saved by grace. And as Paul continues... he thinks about the unbelief that's in the hearts of so many of his fellow Israelites from verse 7. What then? What then? 
Israel, the nation of Israel. They haven't obtained what they seek. He's mentioned this before. The elect have obtained it. The rest, the rest were hardened. There's that simple little illustration, isn't there, which is quite helpful, really, where you, you go out into the midday sun and you, you put down a lump of clay and you put down a lump of wax and the same sun melts the one and hardens the other. The gospel does the same thing to the human heart. Some hearts it softens. Some hearts it hardens. Paul makes this clear distinction between the nation of Israel in general and those who are of God's elect. He does it there in verse 7 once more because those two groups of people are not the same. One is contained within the other but they're two distinct groups of people. These are bittersweet words, aren't they? The elect have obtained it. The rest were hardened. What rejoicing there is amongst God's elect who are the objects of this grace. But as for the rest, they only grow harder against him against the gospel and take note their hardening of heart is God's doing the elect have obtained it the rest were hardened and how do we know it's God's doing well look at the the things that Paul quotes from the Old Testament does God twist people's arms behind their backs in order to harden them? Does God force sinners kicking and screaming to harden their hearts? Is God taking them in a direction that they would not otherwise go in their sin? Not in the least. They are without excuse. Paul's, Paul's nailed that point down right at the start of the letter in the opening two chapters. They are without excuse as they plunge headlong into sinful rebellion. God is sovereign. Sinners are completely responsible for their sins before them. Well, we sang earlier about fathomless mystery. Well, there's one. God is sovereign over each one who is saved. God is sovereign over each one who hardens their heart. Yet those who harden their hearts, God holds them responsible and accountable for their sins. And back to the Old Testament again we go. Paul is looking at Isaiah 29. He's looking at Deuteronomy 29. And he's looking at Psalm 69. Verse 8. God's given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they shouldn't see, ears that they shouldn't hear. To this very day, this has been happening. This is the state. This is the situation. Stupor. What is stupor? Stupor is the inability to comprehend. 
the inability to comprehend. Being the worst for alcohol is sometimes called what? Being in a drunken stupor. Literally senseless. And God gives them over to evil, sinful desires and passions. He says so in, in the opening chapter of Romans. They are so consumed by their sin, they become senseless to the gospel. They become senseless to the things of God. In my 20s, I used to talk to another Christian believer who was a police officer, uh, first in Warrington and then in Liverpool. He used to speak to me about his dread of having to deal with someone who was severely drunk. It was a nightmare. It would take at least six of them to control a drunk man or woman. All powers of reason have gone. Their normal, sober personality is nowhere to be seen. They are completely overwhelmed by this stupor. They're like a Jekyll and Hyde comparing sober with drunk. This whole new, violent, insolent persona takes hold of them. They seem to feel no pain. This stupor has come upon them. A senseless person in every way. And, and God is saying here, so spiritually, those who are hardened against God and his grace, they become more blind, they become more deaf to the things of the gospel. Look at verse 9 from Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Well, what's, what's going on here? A table. Do you remember David in the 23rd Psalm? You prepare a table before me. That table in the 23rd Psalm is a picture of a place of bountiful provision from God. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 55? Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. There's a table spread full of every delicacy you could imagine. And spiritually, this table speaks of God's bountiful provision. It's a picture of God's grace. But here, the table becomes a snare and a trap and a stumbling block. That which God holds out to save actually only serves to antagonize and to turn them more fiercely against the Lord. Their eyes become increasingly darkened. They become more and more lost in their sins. 
There it all is, written centuries earlier, says the apostle. That was the state of so many in Israel back then. It's all here in the scripture. If you'll only take the time and trouble to read it, and if you'll only seek the Lord's help in understanding it. Nothing's changed today, says Paul. And it's not restricted to Israel. Dear unsaved friend, if you continue to resist God's grace, the Bible warns you that one day you'll discover that your heart has become so hard against God that you're past the point of no return and you'll be lost forever. But today is a day of grace. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Receive God's gift of grace today while yet you have eyes to see. While yet you have ears to hear. Turn to Christ, repent of your sins, take hold of him by faith, and be saved. That's the heart of the apostle. It's the heart of many here for you, if as yet you don't know Christ. What keeps you? What hinders you? Such grace all of grace, nothing for you to do. Christ has done it all. Receive him by faith and know this God of grace.